Today is part two of our series called Prepared, where we're looking about, you know, there's times when somebody asks you a tough question about your faith, or maybe they make a little snide remark about your faith, and if given enough time, you could probably come up with the correct answer or come up with a little witty comeback, but in the moment, so often you feel unprepared for it, you feel very ill-equipped, and so what this series is really all about is giving you just little short phrases that you're going to be able to use as you're out and you're sharing your faith and, and sort of have a, a way to talk about faith and defend your faith without losing your mind. So if you were with us last week, we looked at the uh, Apostle Peter, and he had this great tip for us in First Peter 3.15, he said this, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. He doesn't say be prepared to answer every single question somebody asks you. He doesn't say be prepared to, you know, explain every verse that somebody asks you about. He doesn't say be prepared to defend all the hypocrites or to talk about what happened back in the Crusades many years ago. He says no. Be prepared to give an answer and a reason for the hope that you have. Why do you believe? What is your hope in? Now, last week we looked at Peter and that his big theme would have been the resurrection. He said basically this. Look, I don't know the answer to a lot of things, but here's what I do know. I watched Jesus die on a cross, and then three days later I had breakfast with him on the beach. Yeah, but, but Peter, what, what about Noah and the flood? What about Adam and Eve? I, I don't know anything about that. All I know is I watched him die on the cross. Three days later, we had breakfast on the beach. That's why I believe. And so we talked about how your answer needs to incorporate some of that because really it's all about the resurrection. If Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, our faith is futile, Scripture says. And so I encourage you to sort of Come up with your own little saying or even memorize a saying that I gave you. So hopefully you did that, and let's sort of review it. I'll give you the first part. It's going to be up on the screen there for you. You say, I believe that Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. So somebody says to you, do you really believe that, like, you know, Joshua and his army, they, like, went seven times around the, the city of Jericho, and then they blew the trumpets on the wall, fell down. Isn't that, like, just make-believe? you really believe that? And you're like, you know what, I, I don't know what to tell you about that, but let me tell you what I believe. I believe that Jesus died for my sin, and he rose from the dead. Now, we said, don't just stop there. You add a little bit more to it, and so what you say then after that is, but I don't believe it just because the Bible says so. It's better than that. Do you really believe that Moses parted the Red Sea? Do you believe, you know, all that? I don't know what to tell you, but here's what I do believe. I believe that Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. But I don't believe it just because the Bible says so. No, it's better than that. Now, last week, I left you hanging on what the better than that part was. Today, we're going to look at exactly what that is. What is better than that? So, here's the deal. I'm not going to give you the exact wording until the very end of today's message. Because we've got to set it up. I've got to give you some context. But I'm going to warn you right now, this is going to be a message you really need to sit up straight, pay attention, don't get distracted, don't be talking to your neighbor here this morning. There's going to be a lot of details, there's going to be a lot of history that's involved, but if you'll grasp what I'm going to share with you, you'll never again fear having someone ask you a question about your faith, because by the time we complete this sentence, you're going to have the exact 
perfect thing that you can say, all right? So please, please, please do whatever you need to, you know, you ADD people, you know, just take your meds or do something, all right? But let's dig in here, and what we need to talk about is the Bible, because again, we're going to say to them, but I don't believe it because the Bible says so. It's better than that, and so you need to understand some things about how do you talk about the Bible. Specifically, what do you say when the Bible is a part of the conversation, or the, the Bible is even a part of the question that somebody has. How do you talk about the Bible with people that don't take the Bible nearly as seriously as what you do? What do you do in situations like that? Well, a lot of that falls back on us. We have got to make sure that we're presenting the Bible in the right way. See, many of us don't. Many of you, you grew up in church or it was taught to you later that the Bible is the foundation of our faith. And you believe that. Somebody told you that this is the foundation of our faith. And just in faith, that's how you act. Here's the problem. Even though you believe that, when somebody questions the Bible and says, well, I don't believe that that's really God's word, you, you have no way to talk to them about it. Because you're like, oh, I just believe it because it's the Bible and you're just supposed to believe it in faith. And they're like, but I don't believe it in faith. Prove to me that this is really God's word. And that's where many of you get hung up is when people say, well, I don't believe that scripture because I don't believe the Bible. Or I don't believe that story because I don't believe the Bible. You have no way to talk to them about it because you believe that this is the foundation of our faith, but it's not the foundation of our faith. And so that's what I want to talk to you about here this morning because if you believe that it's the foundation of our faith and you like have somebody question you about a verse or about a story, you're going to be like, I don't know, and I'm not sure really why I believe all this. And then the more you start to question yourself, the more you're going to start to question your faith, your relationship with Jesus, and ultimately you may lose your relationship with Christ because you think that this is the foundation. There was a great blog post that came out back in May. Maybe some of you saw it on Facebook because it went viral. It was gone all over the place. And it was from a young woman, and it was entitled, Why I Miss Being a Born-Again Christian. And basically what had happened was she didn't grow up in the church, but as a teenager, she got invited by a friend to go to her friend's church. She becomes a Christian. She becomes a follower of Jesus. She's on fire for Jesus. She starts going on missions trips, and she's serving the poor and the homeless. She's doing all kinds of things. She goes off to college, and her faith just continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. She gets done college. She decides she's going to go to graduate school, and it was at graduate school that a couple professors started to nitpick at her faith. They started questioning this verse and this story, and they were showing her apparent contradictions in Scripture. And the more that she couldn't answer the questions, the more she started to doubt. And eventually she gave up on her faith. She gave up on Jesus. This whole blog post was her basically saying, I'm not a born-again Christian anymore. I believe that the whole Bible is a book of fairy tales. But there's a lot of things that I miss about the church. I miss the people. I miss the camaraderie. I miss doing things with, with people. I miss that. But in this blog, she talks a little bit about some of when she was being questioned and, and as she started to, to feel that Scripture was being ripped from her hands. Here's what she actually says. We evangelicals with our infallible view of Scripture ripped from our hands were left gasping for air. If you crumble and toss out our literal reading of the Bible then what does it mean to talk about Jesus literally dying for our sins? 
Again, many of you were taught growing up that this is the infallible Word of God, that there's no error, there's, there's, you know, every single story is absolute truth. And you know what? We do believe that. But again, you have no way to defend that if you think that this is the foundation of your faith. And that's what she went off to college believing, that this is the infallible Word of God. But as soon as somebody started to get her to question a little bit, it was like a house of cards. You pull one card out and the whole thing came tumbling down to the point that she lost her faith. And the same thing's going to be true of you. If you think that this is the foundation, you're going to end up lost. That's why you've got to realize that what you and I believe has very little to do with what's between the covers of this book. Now, a lot of you are looking at me like, this has been complete heresy so far. Four years he's been on track, and now he's gone crazy on us. But let me explain exactly what I mean by this, and I think you'll agree with me by the time we're done. We've got to first of all talk about the Old Testament. We as Christians don't take the Old Testament seriously just because it's in the Bible. It's not why we take it seriously. If you're taking notes here this morning, the reason that Christians take the Old Testament seriously is because Jesus took it seriously. Do you, do you really believe in Adam and Eve? Do you really believe in Noah and the flood? Do you believe in Joshua and all that kind of stuff? Let me tell you why I believe it. Not because it's in the Bible. It's better than that. I believe it because Jesus believed it. And you don't have a problem with Jesus, do you? Right? Remember we talked about that last week. A lot of people, they, they question your faith and they, they question the behaviors of Christians and they question scriptures and stuff, but very few people have a problem with Jesus. And so the reason that we as Christians take the Old Testament seriously is because Jesus took it seriously. Jesus talked a lot about things in the Old Testament, the stories and the laws, the people, the commands. He really believed everything that is written in it. In fact, he says this in Matthew 5:17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is like, look, I didn't come to trash the Old Testament. I didn't come to nitpick it, every little story. He said, no, I came to fulfill all the commands that are written in it, to be the fulfillment of prophecy. That's why I came. And so again, you and I take the Old Testament seriously because Jesus took it seriously. Let me give you an example of this. Jesus actually talked about Adam and Eve. Which is a more compelling argument if you're out talking to somebody? That I believe the story of Adam and Eve because it's in the Bible? You know, somebody, they're, they're out and they're, they're asking you, well, you really believe, you know, the, they're naked, you know, and the fig leaves and all that, and the, the tree and the serpent and the apple and all this kind of thing. You really believe that? Is it really going to make your point that, well, yeah, I believe it because it's in the Bible? It's not going to work, is it? Because they're like, I don't believe the Bible. So what's more compelling? I believe the story of Adam and Eve because it's in the Bible, or I believe the story of Adam and Eve because Jesus did. That's a much more convincing argument, isn't it? 
I don't believe it just because it's in the Bible. No, it's better than that. I believe the story of Adam and Eve because Jesus did. And again, you can use this for anything that people ask you about the Old Testament. Well, you really believe that God commanded this, and you really believe that God did that, and, you know, the Red Sea, the whole thing. Look, I, I don't believe it just because it's in the Bible. No, it's better than that. I believe the stories that are in the Old Testament because Jesus took them seriously. And if Jesus took them seriously, then I'm going to take them seriously as well. All right. So, again, there, there's, you know, a bunch of crazy stuff that's in the Old Testament. If you ever read it, you know, it's, it's crazy. You don't need TV if you read the Old Testament. But you don't have to defend the Old Testament. You don't have to defend this book. Just say to people, yeah, there's a bunch of crazy stuff in there. But why, why do you think I believe it? And they're going to say, because it's in the Bible. No, 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 I don't believe it because it's, it's better than that. I believe it because Jesus believed it. Jesus talked about it. He said that it was true, and so I think it's true as well. Here's the deal. Part of the reason that you want to always bring the, the conversation back to Jesus is because somebody's eternal life doesn't hinge upon did Moses really part the Red Sea? Was there literally a six-day creation or did God create the heavens and the earth over a thousand years? Your eternal life doesn't depend on that. Your eternal life depends on did Jesus rise again from the dead? So you always want to bring the conversation as quickly as possible to Jesus. Everything else is just a smokescreen, Adam and Eve and all, all that kind of stuff. Get it back to Jesus. Now, a smart person is going to say this. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're telling me that you believe all the stories of the Old Testament because Jesus talked about them and believed in it, but yet everything we know about Jesus is found in the Bible. So what you're telling me is the reason that you believe the Bible is because of the Bible. And you're going to be like, oops, they got me. Because <laughs> that would be called circular thinking. But see, what that means is they have a misunderstanding of what the Bible is. They almost had you, but not quite. Bible is a Latin term, which actually comes from a Greek word, that means books. This is an A book. This is a collection of books, 66 of them altogether. You see them here on the screen, all 66 uh, books of the Bible. The top half there, those are the books of the Old Testament. The bottom half are the books of the New Testament. And the four big ones there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are what are called the Gospels. They start the New Testament. Those are the most important books in the entire Bible. But what we need to realize is that this is not a book. It's a collection of books. Again, Bible means books, plural, more than one. The Old Testament, the 39 books that you see there, it was already being circulated around as a, it would have been called the, the Hebrew Bible or you know, the Torah. It was being circulated around, even being translated into other languages long before it ever got included in this collection that you and I hold today called the Bible. The books on the bottom there, the New Testament, they were being circulated around individually, all 27 of them. 
before they were ever bound together into what's called the good old B-I-B-L-E. So people can't say that they have a problem with the Bible. They can have problems with a book of the Bible, have questions about a book of the Bible, but you can't just throw out the whole thing just because you have a problem with part of it. Because it's not a book. It's a collection of books that all go together. Again, it was all being circulated around, including the Gospels themselves were being circulated around far before they ever got bound together. In fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were put together as a collection and being circulated as, quote-unquote, the Gospels, which means good news, by the way. That this is the good news of what Jesus did for us. Again, long before it ever got included in the rest of it. So, here's why this is important. So on your outline there. Christians don't believe the Gospels because they're in the Bible. Christians believe the Gospels were included in the Bible because they're considered reliable. Stop to think about the difference of that for a second. Let me read it again. Christians don't believe the Gospels because they're in the Bible. Christians believe the Gospels were included in the Bible because they're considered reliable. Let me illustrate it for you this way. I'm a huge baseball fan. And a couple years after Lisa and I got married, we took a couple-week trip that was basically the, a tour of the whole northeast of the United States. Part of our uh, stop was in Cooperstown, New York, where the Baseball Hall of Fame is at. What a lot of people don't realize about the Baseball Hall of Fame is that it's actually two parts to it. There's a museum part, which you're going to see some pictures here of the museum. And what you find in the museum is all these displays, and it's like history and the memorabilia, and, and you know, it talks about the records that have been set, and, and you can see all kinds of stuff. And it's uh, low ceilings, it's uh, sort of a little bit dark in some ways. I mean, they light up the display cases good, but it's sort of dark as you're walking through it and everything. And, and you're getting to see the history of the game, and again, all this different memorabilia and, and various things there. The actual Hall of Fame, though, is a separate part of the building. And when you walk into it, it's like, because <gasps> oh. it is, it's a grand hall. The ceilings are high. It's very, very light. It's, uh, you know, the, the marble floors and the, the very nicely done, you know, walls and stuff. And then that's where the plaques hang of the Hall of Famers. What you need to realize about the Baseball Hall of Fame is this. You're not a great player because you're in the Hall of Fame. You're in the Hall of Fame because you're a great player. That makes sense? They don't put a plaque at Gilbert Thurston on that wall there and say, oh, he must be a great player. No, you're not a great player because you're in the Hall of Fame. You get into the Hall of Fame because you were considered a great player. And who is it that, that determines... Who goes into the Hall of Fame? Well, it's the Baseball Writers Association of America. And basically, after you've been a member for 10 years, you get a vote. And these are the guys that follow the teams around day after day after day. Remember, baseball season is 162 games. And so these guys, I mean, they're with the team all the time, and they're observing the players on a day-to-day -day basis. They travel all around. And at the end of a career, all these writers together, they compare each and every player against all the peers of their own generation and against the players of the previous generations, and they say, was this a Hall of Fame player or not? Do they deserve to have a plaque 
hung in the Hall of Fame? Were they truly an elite player? And, you know, that's quite an honor if you're included in this collection of players. What you need to realize is that the Bible is the same way. The, the, The Gospels are the same way. That we believe the Gospels are in the Bible. Not because, well, they're just in the Bible. No, we, we believe that they were included in the Bible because they were considered reliable. That's why they're in there. Because they're reliable. That, that people looked at them and said, look, these deserve to be a part of this collection. This is truthful. These were eyewitnesses. Now, of course, the question is, well, why were they considered reliable? Again, if you're taking notes, the Gospels are considered reliable because of who wrote them and when they were written. Considered reliable because of who wrote them and when they were written. Now, to understand why this is so important, we've got to do a little bit of history. And I know when I was in school, I hated history. All right, but hopefully I'm going to make this uh, interesting enough that, that you'll get something out of it. Really, there's only one date that you as a Christian need to know in order to defend your faith, and that is the year 70 A.D. Everybody say that with me, 70 A.D. That's the only date you need to know. Let me explain why. But first, let me give you some context. Keep in mind that God's people were the the Jewish people. Eventually, they become the nation of Israel. But before they actually became a nation, they were in slavery down in Egypt, and eventually they leave slavery under the leadership of Moses, and they're wandering around in the desert, and it's there that God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and the rest of the commands that the uh, nation was eventually supposed to follow. And what God said to Moses was this, look, I want you to build me a place of worship. But remember, they're nomads at that point. They're traveling around. So this had to be sort of portable. Like we're a portable church that everything has to set up and tear down. Well, that's what they were doing. They were doing portable church for 40 years. We only had to do it for four. So we count ourselves good there, right? But, you know, they keep moving and they're tearing things up and setting it down. But they built this thing. It was called the tabernacle. And it was this huge tent, basically. And literally, this was where God lived, you know, Today, God lives in us, and God's presence is everywhere. But in that time, God's presence was in this place. It was called the Holy of Holies. It was there inside this tent. And so this is the place where people would come to worship. This was the place that people would come to bring their animals, to give to the priest, that then would offer up sacrifices so that your sin could be forgiven. So the, the, the tabernacle was a very, very important place for the nation of Israel. Well, eventually they, they cross over into the promised land and, and they establish what is now modern-day Israel. And eventually what happens is God says to Solomon, look, I don't want to live in a tent any longer. I want you to take the same pattern and now build me a house. And so they build in Jerusalem, which was the capital city and still is the capital city of Israel, they build this thing called the temple. And it took years and years and years to to build this thing. Huge building. Beautiful building. And again, this is where God's presence was at. This is where all the artifacts that, you know, the the Ark of the Covenant. Have you ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? You know, that's what that was all about. What happened to the Ark? You know, and stuff. Well, I'll tell you in just a little bit what happened to the Ark. Um, 
And so it's there, and the the, the staff of Moses is there, and and the showbread, and all these uh, memorabilia, so to speak, just like the Hall of Fame has memorabilia. They had all of the nation of Israel's memorabilia there in the temple. So this was a very special place, and people would come to worship. And again, people would come and bring the animals, offer up sacrifices for the sins. This was the most important place for the Israelites. Jesus talked about the temple. Jesus taught in the temple. Very, very important. Now, I've also shared with you in the past that during Jesus' time, they were under the rule of the Roman Empire. This was Caesar's kingdom. And the Jews, they didn't like it that they were under another kingdom, but they just sort of put up with it. Occasionally, there were some revolts and people you know, trying to push against it, but usually you were quickly uh, executed for sort of having anything bad to say about Caesar. They really didn't make a big push to, to try to revolt until 66 A.D. If you read history, you're going to see that this is what's called the First Jewish War. And in 66 A.D., a, a bunch of the Jews, they were able to barricade themselves inside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And they were able to keep Caesar and all of his Roman guards and soldiers out of the city. And, of course, Caesar's furious because the then-known world, it was all his. And now there's this little city and this, uh, you know, wall that is keeping him from controlling everything. And he's mad. He's mad. No, you're supposed to be under my rule. And they lock themselves inside the walls. And so Caesar sends a general down by the name of Titus. And he tells Titus, you do whatever it takes to retake that city. Titus makes sure that no food supplies can get in. He's trying to starve them out. Well, that doesn't work. He tries sending troops in to you know, ram the walls and climb the walls and stuff, but the Israelites were doing a good job. You know, the, the Jews were keeping them back. Eventually, as time goes on, Caesar says to Titus, take it to the next level. And so Titus rounds up the relatives of those that were inside of the city brings them outside of the city walls, puts up crosses. And in one day, the historian Josephus, who, uh, by the way, he was a Jewish historian, and he he writes a lot about the the nation of Israel and their history. He was also actually an eyewitness of this whole thing, so he wasn't writing this as a history later. He was actually there because Rome actually hired him at one point to be a negotiator to try to get the people to come out. But he writes in his writings that on that day, Rome executed by crucifixion 500 relatives of the people inside the city, outside the city walls. He was hoping that that would convince the people to come out, but it didn't. They kept going and they kept going and kept going. Four years. Four years that Caesar hasn't been able to take this city. And Titus, who's his general, is just like, I don't know what to do. Finally, 70 A.D. rolls around. Caesar's like, I've had it. I've had it. I don't care how many troops it cost us. We've got to take this city. And so finally, they, they bust through the wall of Jerusalem. But here's the funny thing. In the meantime, in the four years, the, the, the Jews on the inside had built two more walls <laughs> on the inside. So they get through the first wall. They get through the second wall. They get through the third wall, 
Again, this has been four years that they've been trying. They are furious. And they go on a rampage once they get into the city. And Josephus writes this. He says, The slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, young and old, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who entreated mercy were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The number of the slain exceeded that of the slayers. The legionnaires had to clamor over heaps of the dead to carry on the work of extermination. In that day, Josephus lets us know that 300,000 Jews were killed inside of the city of Jerusalem. Now, as bad as what that sounds, even worse was that the Romans came in and they took all the ancient artifacts out of the temple and they carried it off in plunder and then they burnt the temple to the ground. Now, a lot of the temple was made of stone. So what didn't burn, they then tore down by hand. I mean, they demolished the temple and they carried off the rocks Outside of the city walls, they said, never again will people worship in this place. Imagine how big of a deal this was for the Jews. This is the place that they worship. This is the place where God lives. This is their museum. This is where their sins are forgiven, and now it's all gone. It's all gone. This was a huge deal. Now, after this, many years later, Titus, he's back in Rome, and he becomes the new Caesar. But he was only Caesar for a very short time. He, uh, historians tell us, got a disease, and he quickly died of it. And then his brother took over. Well, his brother wanted to honor Titus in some way. And so if you go to Rome to this day, you can see this sort of memorial that his brother built to Titus. There's going to be a picture of it here on the screen for you and gives you sort of perspective of how big this is. It's called the Arch of Titus. Again, you can go to Rome and you can visit that. And you, you see, it's huge because Titus' brother, he wanted to make sure that his brother was never forgotten. And what Titus' brother wanted to do was make sure that his greatest accomplishment was never forgotten. And so in the inside of that arch there, you see the encarved walls. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of the Roman guards. And what are they doing? They're carrying off the plunder. You see all the symbolic Jewish stuff there. So again, this is in Italy. That they're remembering the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. So not only was this a huge deal for the Jews... But this was a huge deal for the Romans as well. Now, you're saying, Gilbert, why are you sharing all this? Well, this is a huge deal for a very simple reason. If you're taking notes, I put it this way. There is no mention of the war or the destruction of the temple in the New Testament. Now, the reason this is a big deal is if you read through the New Testament you notice that a lot of Peter's writings and, and Peter's activities and Paul's writings and, and Paul's activities center around the city of Jerusalem. Or when they were going off on missions trips, they got sent out from the city of Jerusalem. But yet, in all 27 books, letters of the New Testament, 
not one of them mentions the war or the destruction of the temple. Now, Jesus died in 33 A.D. The war started in 66 A.D. So what does that tell you about the timeline of when the New Testament was written? What's it tell us? Why is the destruction of the temple not mentioned in Scripture? Come on, you're a smart crowd. Why? Because it hadn't happened yet. They wrote all this before it actually happened. I mean, it'd be sort of like today doing like this huge book on terrorism in the United States. And if 9-11 wasn't included in that book, what would you say? The book must have been written before 9-11. Because how could you talk about the biggest thing that's ever happened terrorism-wise in our country without including it in there in some way? And I just showed you that for the Jews, the destruction of the temple was a huge deal. That for the Romans, it was a huge deal. But yet it's not mentioned one time that lets us know that everything written in here was written sometime in that short window, a 30-year period or so. See, there's a lot of critics of the Bible that they're like, well, the Bible was actually written like hundreds of years after Jesus. That, yeah, it says that these guys were actually like Jesus' followers and stuff, but no, it was just somebody, they, they made it up later on. And they just sort of embellished the story. It was like the old telephone game, you know. Yeah, there maybe been a guy named Jesus, and maybe he did a couple miracles or something, but as the years went on, the story just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Eventually they said that he was God and that he rose from the dead. That's what a lot of critics say. But I want you to think about this logically. If that were true, let's say it was written in you know, 300 A.D. or something. If you were going back and making up stories, wouldn't you be sure to include and leverage this big thing happening, this war and the destruction of the temple? Because the, the writers of the Gospels, they do mention the temple various times, you know, and they do mention some of the things that Jesus said about the temple. Jesus said, you can destroy this temple, meaning his body. And he said, I will raise it up in three days. Well, if this was written 300 years later or something, wouldn't they have said, Jesus said that you can destroy this temple, but three days later, I'll bring it back to life, unlike the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Or wouldn't the writers have said something like, see, God allowed the the, the, uh, temple in Jerusalem to be destroyed to prove to people once and for all that Jesus is the only sacrifice that's needed for sin. You don't need the lamb's blood or the goat's blood or the dove or the bull anymore. And that's why God allowed the destruction of the temple. Wouldn't they have like included that in if it was written many years later? Of course they would have. But yet they didn't. Why? Because it was actually written between 33 and 66 AD. That's why. And then, you know, you'll have other people that they'll come along and and they'll say to you some things like, well, you know what? Even if it was written within that 30-year period, it probably wasn't written like toward until towards the end of the 30-year period. And it's hard to remember things 30 years later. And so they probably made a lot of it up. Here's the deal. Big things, even if it's 30 years, you remember it. Back in September, it was 29 years since I had a major football injury. I've shared the story with you before. 
I remember that it was September the 23rd. I remember it was about 9.30 at night. I remember the team that we were playing against. I remember the play that we were running. I remember the quarterback's name. I can remember, you know, a bunch of stuff about that particular night. Now, I am a little bit fuzzy on some other details, you know, things like um, what was some of the linemen's name. I don't remember all the linemen. Uh, I can't quite remember were we just on this side of the 50-yard line or on just on the other side of the 50-yard line. Uh, so there are a couple, like, details that I don't remember. And, you know, there may be some other people that were there. My parents are here, and they were obviously there that night, that they may have some details that may be a little bit different than my details. But just because there be some minor discrepancies in our story doesn't mean that the whole thing didn't happen. There's nobody that would deny that Gort's leg got shattered that night. Even if the details of the story are a little bit different. And see, it's the same way with Scripture. Yes, even if some of it was written 30 years later, nobody's going, I can't remember, did, did Jesus rise from the dead? I can't quite remember. It's been 30 years. Did he, did he rise from the dead or not? No, something like that you tend to remember. There are some things as you read through the Gospels, you know, some of the numbers and the days and stuff that it's a little bit off. You know, how many people got fed on that day? I don't know. Was it 5,000? Was it 4,000? Was it with men and children? Was it with women? The details are a little bit different, but the gist of the story is still the same. Jesus did a miracle and fed a multitude of people. And so just because somebody can point out to you minor little discrepancies in the the stories doesn't mean that you throw the whole thing out. And so again, we believe as Christians that the, the Gospels are reliable because of who wrote them and when they were written. All right, let's start to bring it all together then. Somebody says to you, do you believe you know, this story in the Old Testament, that story in the Old Testament, you know, Adam and Eve, or you believe in whatever? What are you going to say? You're going to say, you know the reason I take the Old Testament seriously? Not because it's in the Bible. No, it's better than that. I take it seriously because who did? Yeah, I take it seriously because Jesus did. Got to put that up there, Mike. Yeah, I take it seriously because Jesus did. That's why I take it seriously. And then what are they going to say? Well, Jesus, all we know about him is found in the Bible. And then you're able to say, well, the reason I take the teachings of Jesus seriously and the gospel seriously isn't because it's in the Bible. No, it's better than that. I believe it because Matthew wrote about it, because Mark wrote about it. Because Luke wrote about it. Because John wrote about it. Because Peter wrote about it. Because James wrote about it. Because Paul wrote about it. I don't believe all the stories because it's in the Bible. I believe it because these guys who were there, they witnessed it. They wrote about it. We can see from history that they wrote it within a time frame that other people could have said, wait, 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 wait. No, no, he didn't rise again from the dead. Again, if it was written in a 30-year period, 
There would have been still people that could have stepped forward and said, wait, all these letters that are going around being circulated, none of it's the truth, but yet nobody did. And so we don't believe the Gospels because it's in the Bible. We believe it because of the eyewitness and the testimony and the, the historical time period that these people wrote it. And so again, if you can just remember that, man, you can defend your faith. You'll be able to do it. Let's try it again. Somebody says, well, what about the Crusades? I don't, I don't want to become a Christian. Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites, and they kill people in the Crusades and stuff, and you're going to be like, what? I don't know what to tell you about that, but let me tell you what I believe. I believe that Jesus died for my sin. And he rose from the dead. But I don't believe it because the Bible says so. No, it's better than that. I believe it because Matthew wrote about it. Mark wrote about it. John, Peter, Paul, James. That's why I believe it. See, if somebody says to you, well, I don't believe that Jesus really rose from the dead... Well, why don't you believe it? Well, because it's in the Bible. Well, no, 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 no. You, you, can't, you can't do it that way. You can't just say you don't believe it because it's in the Bible because the Bible is just a collection of a bunch of writings. What you're going to have to do is one at a time tell me why you believe that Matthew was lying about what he witnessed and wrote about. Why you believe that Mark was lying what he witnessed and wrote about. That Luke is lying. Why you think John was lying. Why you think... Peter, James, and Paul. Why, why do you think that they're lying? Because one at a time, you have to discredit them. You can't just say, I don't believe it because it's in the Bible. Does that make sense? So again, what I want you to do is I want you to memorize this statement. Can you put that back, Mike? I want you to memorize this. I want you to memorize it. And, you know, get it memorized, and then you'll be able to start to put it in your own words. And no matter what, no matter what people ask you, no matter what question they have, no matter, oh, you're, you're one of those religious people, aren't you? You ever gotten asked that or that's been said about you before, and you're like, how do you, how do you answer that? Because, yeah, I'm a Christian and stuff, but, you know, religious people has sort of a bad connotation. You're like, you know what, I'm, I don't even know what you mean by a religious uh, person, but I can tell you what I believe. I believe that Jesus died for my sin and he rose from the dead. I don't believe it just because the Bible says so. No, it, it's much better than that. I believe it because of the, the eyewitness accounts that were written about by guys like Matthew and James and Peter and John, and you just go through the whole list. It's pretty simple. It's pretty simple to do. Now the question is, are you going to have the faith and the boldness to actually do it? Are you going to prepare yourself and be ready to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that you have inside? Like we said last week, you need to do that then with gentleness and do it with respect. And live your life in such a way that if people slander you, they're slandering you for all the good stuff that you're doing.
that they see God working in you. And it convicts them of their own sinfulness. All right, let's pray this morning. Father God, thank you for, uh, again, just the clarity of your word. And Lord, even though we, we believe in your word, it's not the foundation of our faith. The foundation of our faith is that you rose again from the dead, that you were resurrected. And if you haven't been resurrected, then our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. And so, Lord, I just pray this morning that we would relax about, we don't have to defend the Bible. We just have to defend your resurrection. So, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would uh, just have the, the courage and the boldness to not only just memorize this little statement that we just learned, but then to be able to use it as we get confronted by people who nitpick at us and, and question our faith. Lord, again, help us to do it with the right attitude, the right spirit, that the, the reason that we share all this is because we want to help other people come into a relationship with you. We don't just want to be right. We don't want to just win an argument. We want to win souls. And so, Lord, help us to do that in a way that would glorify you and bring honor to your name. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.